0: O gracious God and most merciful Father who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I see that the elect showed up today. So, we're going to jump right in. We are in an ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we are dealing today with the very difficult topic of not just election or predestination, but the doctrine of reprobation. Election is the idea that God, before the foundations of the earth, saves some as a matter of sheer grace, in spite of their undeserving, And reprobation is the idea that he passes others by. And if you think about it, they are two sides of the same coin to some degree, although we're going to see they cannot be treated exactly the same. Um, This is, as I've said to you for the past two weeks, the most difficult section, I think, of the entire Bible, not simply of the Epistle to the Romans, but really the most difficult section of the Bible. There are difficult sections in Scripture. We all recognize that fact. certainly. Some of the apocalyptic visions that you find in the book of Daniel or the eschatological teachings that you find in John's revelation, all of those things can be difficult at times to decipher, to understand, to sift through, but I think they pale by comparison to the difficulty that we struggle with when it comes to what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 9. And that's why I said to you last week that you cannot emote when it comes to these subjects. You you have to begin to think through them. The question is not whether or not we like them or don't like them, or whether we find them palatable or not. The real question, and quite frankly, the only question is, is it true? As I've said to you before, many people will from time to time say, well, I could just never believe in a God who would send people to hell. And I always respond by saying, yes, you can. What you really mean is you don't want to believe in such a God who sends people to hell. But that's irrelevant because if there is a God who sends people to hell, then that's the God with whom we have to deal. And so the question is not do we like election or predestination or reprobation or any other doctrine. The real question is, is this the way that God operates? And if it is the way that God operates, and we know that God is supremely good, he is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and unacceptable. If this is the way that God operates, then you and I, I'm sorry to say, have to deal with it. So let's deal with it today, shall we? Let's just go ahead and look at Romans chapter 9. We're going to read verses 6 through 18, and then we're going to come back and try to wade through some of this. Paul is writing, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. She was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, you could see the logic of Paul's mind. He anticipates the objection. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And so Paul anticipates that and he says, are we saying there's injustice on God's part? No, God is God, God can do as he pleases is basically Paul's argument. You end this section with, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, Paul anticipates an objection. Here's the objection, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? who can resist his will? But what is Paul's response to that? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. When people say, well, that's not really what's being taught here. Paul is not really teaching that that God chooses some and passes over that, that that's not the teaching of the scripture then why in the world does Paul anticipate the objections See, that's how you know that that's exactly what Paul is teaching because we know exactly what the objections are we've made the objections ourselves. well that just doesn't seem fair that seems unjust and Paul says you're going to say God's unjust he has an answer for that well if God saves some and he doesn't save others then it doesn't really matter what we do, does it? Paul anticipates that as well. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? And Paul has a response for that as well. That's how we know that that is exactly what he's teaching here. Because he knows the objections, they are precisely the same objections that you and I have raised from time to time. Now what I want to do over the course of the next hour or so, is explain to you why I think the doctrine of election is essential, and why ultimately it has to be this way, and why ultimately it really is good news. Because the prayer book refers to the doctrine of election, you can find it in the 39 articles I pointed out to you, that of all the 39 articles, the longest, the most involved is the 17th article, which deals specifically with the doctrine of predestination and election, and lo and behold, it says that this is a doctrine that is full of pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. To godly godly persons. persons. Now, if you're confused, I understand. It's all right. (laughs) My job is to help clear the air here and make it a little bit easier for you. Now, before we jump into this, as many times as I've talked about this, I still get people asking me the question, what is the difference between free will? Or what is the relationship between free will and the doctrine of election? If we are elected, if we are predestined before the foundations of the earth, what about free will? Well, we hear a great deal about free will today. We hear about the free will defense, we hear about the fact that we are free moral agents. I wanna to try to help you understand the distinction here. Uh, in fact, what I'm going to argue is that we actually don't have free will. We have free choice, but we do not have free will and it is vitally important, you'll know, I'm gonna just say this right now, You will never ever understand what Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter nine until you understand the distinction between those two ideas, free will and free choice. They sound like they're the same thing, but they are not the same thing. Now, one of the most helpful people on this subject was the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who back in the 16th century wrote a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I think Martin Luther's going to be probably heavy slogging. It's going to be deep. Actually, I think if you read The Bondage of the Will, you'll find it very helpful. And Luther had a great ability to sort of distill things in a way that even the lay person could understand. He was a great theologian in the 16th century, but he was also the pastor of the local church. And so it wasn't just ethereal theology that he was dealing with, how many angels dance on the head of a pin? He was dealing with people and their own problems, their own struggles and so forth. And so he had to take these great theological doctrines and somehow distill them down to the level that people in the pews could understand them. And you are far more educated than the average person living in 16th century Germany. So I think you would be blessed by Studying the bondage of the will. Now, here's what Luther basically said. He said, The will is that part of us that determines our likes, our desires. All right? The will is that part within us that determines our likes, our desires. Now, I've used this illustration before, but It's the best illustration that I know of to make the distinction. It has to do with our nature. What we are by birth. And what are we by birth? All right, well, you got that part. The best illustration I can use is the illustration of a lion. Lions are by nature by nature, not by choice, but by nature, carnivores. Now that, that's their nature. Now, you could put a lion in captivity in a cage next to the cage that is filled with gazelles, but you cannot feed the lion the same thing you feed the gazelle, why? because one feeds on meat alone and the other will not eat meat. One is a carnivore, one's a herbivore. And the gazelle will feast itself on grain or whatever you give it. But the lion will starve. You you can put the same thing that the gazelle is eating in the lion's den. Does the lion have the physical ability to eat? leaves or grain or whatever you give him of course he does but it's not in his nature his nature is only to eat what meat and he will starve before he will eat something else that is his nature now what is interesting is that the book of isaiah says that the day will come when the lion will lie down with the lamb. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, And the weaned shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The lion by nature will only eat meat. It's not because he's incapable physically of eating something else. It's just that it is contrary to his nature. And yet, Isaiah says, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. You know, Edward Hicks' beautiful painting of the peaceable kingdom. That one day, the child is going to be able to put his hand over the cobra's den. Now, if a child sticks his hand in a cobra's den, what is the cobra going to do? It's going to bite him. That's that's the snake's nature. If a lamb wanders into the lion's den, what's going to happen to the lamb? It's mutton for dinner. The only way you see that the kingdom of God, which is described here in Isaiah, this beautiful picture of the peaceable kingdom in which God shall wipe away every tear from our eyes, the only way that that comes to pass is if there is a change of nature in these creatures. The lion's never going to eat straw. He's never going to lie down with the lamb. The cobra will always bite the child. The adder will always inflict his venom. Always, 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 because it is their nature. The only way that these things will not take place as if there is a change of nature. That's what this picture of the kingdom of God is all about. There will be a change of nature. Well, Martin Luther says our nature, because we're all OS positive, we're all born in sin. That's what David says in Psalm 51. Before I was even born in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. It's one of the reasons why the very first thing that children learn to say is no. That's our nature, you see. And our nature is determined, that's our will, our nature, our will determines the things that we will do. And if your will, your nature is bound in sin, what that means is that you will always choose the sinful path. Now you will do it freely In other words, if the lamb wanders into the lion's den, the lion is inclined to eat it. But nobody's holding a gun to the lion's head. The lion eats of his own free choice. Sometimes he's not hungry and the lamb goes through and he doesn't eat it. But if he is hungry, because it's his nature, he will eat the lamb unless he has a change of nature. Well, what I want to suggest to you and what Martin Luther argues in The Bondage of the Will is that because we are born sinners, we are the children of Adam, our parents passed on their disease to you and to me. We know that certain families have predilections for certain things. It's one of the reasons why they want you to do genetic and DNA testing when you begin to have children these days so that they can determine what you have passed on to your children. Well, there is a sense in which our parents have passed on to us our sinful nature. So when we choose, we choose freely. Nobody's holding a gun to our head. The problem, however, is that because our nature is sinful, the choices will always be what? Sinful at their root. Even the things that the world looks at and says, oh, well, that's good, that's praiseworthy. Oftentimes we choose them because they make us feel good or look good. Because we're selfish. And we're selfish because we're sinful. And we're sinful, why? Because that's our nature. So we make our choices freely, but the choices we make are sinful because of our nature. So what has to happen? God has to change our nature. The lion will only lie down with the lamb if God changes the lion's nature. The cobra will only refrain from striking the child if God changes its nature. And that's what God must do with us. And that's why you have that marvelous picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven. It has to be a new heaven and a new earth, why? because everything that is on it has to have a change of nature. And behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." The only way that can happen is if there's a new world. The only way that you and I can begin to choose the things that are noble and pure and lovely is if God gives us a new nature. We choose freely but our choices are always determined by our nature. So we have free choice, but our wills are bound. This is why Thomas Cranmer says, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So it's important that we understand that distinction. When somebody says, well, don't we have free will? The answer to that is no. no. (laughs) But we do have free choice. It's just that our choice is determined by our nature. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. As David says in Psalm 51, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. We are all oh. S positive, so it's important that we understand that. Any questions about that before we move on? The line from Cranbro, I thought you were going to say, would you say that all over again? I was going to be like, oh, my God. Uh, at which point I was going to be like Jesus with his disciples, how much longer must I be with you? Um, no, the passage is, um, it's a great line and it's important. Um, Whatever the heart desires, see, that's the free choice. The will chooses and the mind justifies. See, that, that's what happens. You know, when we, when we do something wrong and somebody calls us on it, what do we do? What's the first thing we do? We try to justify our actions. Did you do this? Yes. Ah, uh, There it is. There's always a but, isn't there? Yes, but. So whatever the heart desires, your heart's going to desire Your will's going to choose it and your mind is going to attempt to justify it. Yes? Uh, you said before that you can't get into heaven uh, on the, on the, on the uh, coattails of perhaps a grandfather who's a pope or something like that. Right. So why should you have to? Of course, if your grandfather's the pope, that's a problem. Let me just tell you right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you're, we'll just say, I understand what you mean. Just because your grandfather's Billy Graham. How's that? Yeah. Or your uncle's the Pope. Um, why should if that doesn't work, why should you have to adopt a sin? If you can't adopt goodness, why can't you why do you have to adopt sin? I don't I, I don't think I really agree with the original sin. Yeah. Well, again, it's not a question of whether we like it or not. It's a question of whether or not it's a fact. So let me just put it to you this way. Do we agree? that the decisions that our parents make can sometimes have an adverse effect on us. So for example, there is a mother who is expecting a child. She's expecting a child. Um, She's a drug user. Or she's an alcoholic. Her child is going to be born with birth defects. Now the child had done nothing right nor wrong but the sins of the parents affect the life of the child. Whether we like it or not, whether it seems fair or not, that is what happens. Well, what the scripture teaches is that when God created man, he made Adam our representative. This is why Jesus is described as the new Adam. This is why Paul says, as in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam was our representative. He was the perfect man. Now, we have a tendency to think, now, wait a minute. That's not fair. I I, I have a right to mess up my own life without Adam helping me with that. I mean, Adam, I, 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 I I might have done better than Adam. And the whole point is that we wouldn't have done better than Adam. Adam was the perfect man. Adam walked with fellowship with God. But the decisions that our forefather Adam made affected us. Now whether we like that or not doesn't matter. I, I, I don't particularly like it either. When my, I remember years ago my son Jackson I, I, I probably need to tease this out someday with him but um, he um, came down with a stomach bug which you know is one of the worst things in the world and the poor kid was running back and forth to the bathroom and he came out one time and he looked at me and he said I hate Adam In other words, he felt that that sickness and disease, whatever it was, that was a result of what Adam had done. I hate Adam. I'm not exactly sure that's good, but it's it's close enough that he, he recognized something there. And there is something in that for you and for me. Now the good news, and this is why Jesus is described as the new Adam, Paul says that because we're all infected with Adam's disease, those who are in Christ, he becomes the new Adam. He does what the first Adam is incapable of doing. And so hold on to that, and let's work through this a little bit more. But it's it's fair. It's fair. I I, I understand not liking it, but, but the question is not, again, whether we like it or not. The question is, is that the way it works? Now, this brings us to this whole subject. Well, if God saves some, what about the others? What happens to them? And that is what we call the doctrine of reprobation. Or if you like it, double or nothing. Now, some people really wrestle with this doctrine of reprobation, this idea that God passes by some because it seems to them to be arbitrary. that God just randomly chooses some and he just randomly chooses others. I think somebody recently described it as choosing by Russian roulette. Is that how God works? It's like, you know, the old game that you play with a daisy and you pull off the petals. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And you hope that by the time he gets to you, he loves you, as opposed to loves you not. It comes across to us as a, as a monstrous doctrine, as rather arbitrary. But again... And I'm gonna argue it's not necessarily arbitrary. God may have reasons. In fact, I would argue he does have reasons. They just may be secret to us. But what I want you to understand again is, the question is not, for Bible-believing Christians, the question is not, do I like this or not? The question is, is there any evidence that this is the way God operates in history? I think one of the things we have to get through our mind, folks is that God is God and we are not. We might think to ourselves, well, I would do it differently. Granted. The problem is this, we're not God and he is, and this is the way that he operates. Now, the question is, does he actually operate that? Is there any proof? And we looked last week at how there is proof of election. We see that over and over again in Scripture. God called Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, even though he was living in great ignorance and and he was living in sin. God called Abraham. Why Abraham and not somebody else? Why was it that, that, that God called Isaac and Jacob? Why did God call the Jews as opposed to every other people on the earth? The scripture says it wasn't because they were more numerous than the other peoples on the earth. It wasn't because they were more noble than the other peoples on the earth. It were told that because God decided to set his affection on them, that he might display his glory in them. That is God's primary goal. I think this is very important. This may be the most important thing I'll say during the entire study of the epistle to the Romans. God's ultimate goal is not our salvation. God's ultimate goal is his glory. His glory. That he might be known to his creation for who he is. It's all about his glory. So let's see... If in terms of God's glory, this is the way that he operates or has operated in history. We're going to take a look at a number of passages. Turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is an easy book to find. Close your Bible and open it right to the middle. And chances are you're going to hit Psalms or you're going to hit Proverbs. If you hit Psalms, go to the right. So, Proverbs chapter 16 is where I'm going. And let's just read through the first four verses. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. For the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has made everything, what? For his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That means to say God made the wicked for the day of trouble. That's an interesting passage. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 12 for a moment. Jesus is dealing with the unbelief of the people. And this is what John says in his gospel. We'll begin at uh, verse 37, 36, first, latter part of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus had performed all these miracles, all these signs, all these wonders, and they still did not believe in him. Why? What more can he do? As the old hymn says, what more can he say than to you he has said? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. It doesn't say, you'll notice, they would not believe. What does it say? They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So it's not a case of where they would not hear. This is a case where Isaiah says they could not hear. And it's in the context of the gospel you see in the unbelief of the people. Turn to John chapter 17. And again, all we're doing at this point is establishing, is this a biblical precept? Is this the way that God works? Now this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. I like to describe this as the real Lord's Prayer. You know what we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's normally not the Lord's Prayer. We call it that. The Catholics call it the Our Father. That's probably a better term for it than the Lord's Prayer, only because this is not a prayer that Jesus ever prayed, the, 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 the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It was a pattern for prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples to follow. But Jesus never asked for the forgiveness of his trespasses because he would never trespassed. But John chapter 17 is the real Lord's Prayer, because this is a prayer that Jesus actually prayed. It's toward the end of his ministry. His disciples are given an opportunity to see Jesus in prayer and to see what Jesus is really asking for. How does Jesus pray? What does he say to the Father when he prays? And Jesus pulls back the curtain, as it were, and he gives them this rich privilege to be able to see him in prayer. You know, most of the time when Jesus prayed, he went off by himself to a lonely place so that he could have communion with the Father. But here on this particular occasion, he allowed the disciples to see him in prayer. And it's a marvelous prayer. Let's just go ahead and read through it until we get to the section that I'm talking about. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now that's interesting. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have what? Given him. Not all those who respond to the gospel, but to all those you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, there's this constant theme of glory, glory, glory. Whose glory? Christ's glory. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, it's God who gives Jesus the people out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now what Jesus is saying there is that, Father, all you have given to me, I have kept. And none of them have been lost except for one. Who's the one? Judas. Judas. And that's so that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see it there? On another occasion, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me, I will in no way cast out. Let's take a look at First Peter. That's toward the very end of your Bible. First Peter chapter 2. Now, if you just stop right there, you're like, okay, I'm with you. I'm tracking with you. But then it says this. They stumble because they disobey the word. Okay, I get that. As they were destined to do. And you think, ah, Peter, why did you have to add that last part? As they were destined to do. Now, let's take a look at the book of Jude. Next to the last book of the Bible, Jude, Revelation. Jude has only one chapter, so when it says Jude four up there, it means verse four. We'll start at verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were what? Designated for this condemnation. Now that is about as strong as you can possibly get. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So you see it in the Old Testament, in Proverbs, in Isaiah. You certainly see it in the New Testament, in the Gospels. You see it in the epistles of Peter, the foremost of the apostles. And you see it right there at the very end in the book of Jude. It is there everywhere you look. Now again, I'm not asking whether we like this or not. The question is, is this what is being taught And the most compelling argument, of course, is what we just read going back now to Romans, where Paul anticipates all of those objections. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say? It's not fair. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But you will say, then why does God still find fault? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? So, the most powerful argument for this doctrine of election and reprobation, the idea of God passing by, and incidentally, that, that's the, what it really is. You know, I think sometimes we have this idea that God chooses some and he condemns the rest. And actually, none of the formularies that came out of the Reformation talk about God consigning people to hell. It talks about God simply choosing some and passing by the rest. What is interesting about our own prayer book and the 39 articles in the back of the prayer book is that they talk about God saving some, delivering them from judgment and wrath, And it says nothing about what happens to the rest. It just sort of ignores that part. Now somebody's saying, yeah, but something happens to them. (laughs) Well, we're gonna get to that in just a moment. But what I was scripture, we we can't avoid that. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Now, some people have said, well, this must be hyperbole. Um, Does God really hate Esau? Uh, Some have argued that that word hate is just a form of Jewish exaggeration, uh, that hate doesn't really mean hate, it simply means loved less. For example, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Jacob and Leah. Now, you know, Jacob had two wives, Leah, and who's the other? Rachel. Rachel. Which one was the more attractive? Rachel, Rachel of course, everybody knows that. And, and, and poor Leah, you know, she just apparently was not as attractive. But, but one of the things that she longed for was a child. And when God blesses her with a child, what does she say? You find it there in Genesis chapter 29, verses 32 through 33. she said, "Now perhaps my husband will love me." It is. It's very sad. But it doesn't mean, you see, that he hated her. It just meant that he loved Rachel more. And so some people have said, well, it doesn't really mean that God hated Esau, he just loved him less. Not sure that that's much of a help at all. But that's what some people have argued. And they have appealed to no less an authority on this than Jesus himself. Because in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking to somebody and he speaks about hating mother and father. Remember that? Keep your finger there in Romans and turn for a moment to Luke. Luke chapter 14. Jesus saying that we should hate, really? Now great crowds accompanied him And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, are we to think that Jesus actually said that we're to hate our mother and father? What about the fifth commandment where we are to honor our fathers and mothers? Are we really supposed to hate Our wives and our children? I mean, Paul writing to the Ephesians says that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. Now, we understand that what Jesus is saying is that when it comes down to it, there will be times in life when you're going to have to choose loyalty to God over loyalty to your own family. And unless you are willing to make a clear decision in favor of God, even over and against your family, in this sense, hate yourself. If if you're not willing to choose God over your own life, that is to say, despise your own life by comparison to God, then he says, you're not worthy of being one of my disciples. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying literally hate. And so some have said, well, when it talks about God loving Jacob, hating Esau, it doesn't mean that he actually hates him. This is a form of exaggeration. And I think there's some validity to that because nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does God ever say we are to hate an individual. Nowhere does it say that God hates an individual. He never hates anybody. And yet the results are still the same, aren't they? If God chooses some and passes by other It is still a form of rejection. Now, does harden really mean harden? Some have argued, well, that's not actually the case either. Hate doesn't actually mean hate. And harden doesn't mean really harden. That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Actually, if you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 8 and chapter 9, one of you discover is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Moses came to him and appealed for the deliverance of the people and we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so some have argued that God never really hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But here's the problem with that there are more references in that same section of scripture to God hardening Pharaoh than to Pharaoh hardening himself. Now I think it's important that we understand some distinctions here. And that is that election and reprobation should not be thought of in the same way. As I said, this is not a case where God chooses some simply because he likes them more than he likes others. And he just passes over others because he doesn't find them attractive. I'm going to choose Rachel because she's good looking. And I'm going to pass by Leah because she's rather plain. That's not the way God works. And that's why Paul answers. Now, I know you're going to find fault, he says, but who are you to talk back to God? God may have reasons for choosing Some and not choosing others. Paul is willing to acknowledge that. The only thing we know for certain as to why he does this and doesn't do it is that it's not because of anything within us. he He wants to glorify himself. In other words, if you are a believer today, it is because God has chosen in his mercy to work in your life, to make you alive, even when you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Why did he do that? Not because he saw anything good in you. Why did he choose Abraham? Not because he saw anything good in Abraham. Why did he choose the Jews? Not because he saw anything good in them. Why did he choose them? Because it pleased him to do so, and in so doing, he glorifies himself. He makes his mercy known, because if God didn't save anybody, I want you to think about this. If God didn't save a single solitary soul, would anybody get injustice? No, we'd get what we deserve. And what do we all deserve as sinners? Judgment, wrath, death. So if God doesn't save anybody, everybody gets justice. The fact that God saves anybody says that he's merciful. Now, you might say, well, he ought to save everybody. Ought implies should. And Paul's response to that is, who are you to tell God what God wants to do? And the most powerful response that he gives is, you're creatures. Paul says, we're creatures, God made us. None of us created ourselves. The only reason we exist day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour is because why? Because God in his mercy gives us our next breath. If God were to withhold his grace for a single moment, you and I would cease to exist in a heartbeat. Well, he says, are you going to tell the potter who's sitting down there at the potter's wheel and making a bull, hey, you can't do that. You got to make that bull for a noble purpose and not for an ignoble purpose. I mean, if a potter sits down and it's his clay and it's his wheel and he decides that he wants to make a bowl that is going to be absolutely stunning, beautiful. You know, Bill is sitting in the back of the room back there. I don't know how many of you know this, but Bill is a master woodworker. He's a master woodworker. He displays his works in some of the art galleries around town. So now, Bill, the next time you do a show, you're going to have to give an invitation to all these folks to come, and I'm sure they, I'm sure they will buy those very expensive bowls that you make. Um, but the point is that he's the potter; he's the woodworker, rather. He can make out of a piece of wood whatever he wants. It's not for me to go in there and say, Bill, you've got to do this, that, or the other thing. He says, I will do with the wood what I please. And if I choose to make one that is going to be absolutely beautiful, and it's going to be a beautiful fruit bowl that's going to sit on the counter, and the other one is going to be used as the dog's dish, that's my right, why? Because I'm the master woodworker. Well, the potter can make whatever he wants. And how can the pot This is the interesting thing. How can the pot say to the potter, I don't like the way you've made me? If the potter wants to at that point, he can just go like this. All right, let's start all over again. That's the illustration that Paul uses here. And I think we need to come to terms simply defending the idea that God is God and God can do as he pleases and whatever God does is right, It is just or it is merciful. Everybody's going to get justice or they're gonna get mercy, but no single solitary soul on the face of the earth is ever going to get injustice. That is Paul's point. No one gets injustice. The potter has the right to do with the clay whatever he does. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer today, if you've heard the message of the gospel and you've responded to it, it's not because you're good. It's not because you're better than your neighbor. It's because God made you alive even when you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And when you heard that marvelous message of grace, that He was prepared to save you, not by virtue of anything that you did, and you responded, you understand that is all of grace from start to finish, from stem to stern. It is all the work of God. And that's why we have to say, not just to God be the glory, but to God alone be the glory. See, the minute that you and I contribute even the smallest iota to our own salvation, we have just robbed God of a little bit of his glory. God did 99% of it, but I did that 1%. But if you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins and he made you alive, it means that he gets all the glory. That's why John Newton could say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. He knew that God had to choose him because he would never have chosen God. But for the grace of God. Now let's go down the rabbit hole for just a moment. These are the two biggest terms you'll probably ever hear me utter from the lectern. Infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. And let me just go ahead and say, if you don't understand this and don't get this, it really doesn't matter, all right? It really doesn't, This this is not gonna make any huge difference in your life one way or the other, I promise you. But it is a matter that theologians sometimes debate infralapsarianism it's up there on the screen and supralapsarianism. now infra and supra supra means before what these two terms mean is this before the fall or after the fall in other words God chooses some passes by others does he make that decision even before the fall occurs in time and space even before the fall took place in Eden, or, you know, in in, in time immemorial, or does God make that decision in light of the fall? Now, as I said, this is debated among historians, debated among theologians and scholars, and one of the reasons it's debated is because we're told that Jesus was the lamb who was slain when? Not in 33 AD, but the scripture says before the foundations of the earth. So, did God choose some before the foundations of the earth? Before the fall or after the fall? Well, as I said, I'm not sure it really makes much of a difference. It's a bit going down the rabbit hole. But it is worth noting that every one of the Reformation statements on the doctrine of election and predestination, the Presbyterian statement in the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession the Lutheran, Augsburg Confession, which also deals with this, the 39 Articles within Anglicanism, all of these mainline denominations, all of these great Reformation traditions, all ascribe to the doctrine of election and predestination. Now, they may have slight variations on the theme, but all of them ascribe to it, and all of them are infralapsarianism in their view. In other words, they're saying that God chose some and passed over others, and he did that in the light of the fall. Okay? So if you don't understand the question, if this is so troublesome, so difficult, why do we even talk about it at all? Why don't we just go from Romans chapter eight, nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height, nor depth, neither angels, nor principalities, nor things present or things to come, nothing in all of creation. Why don't we just go from that right to chapter 12 and skip nine through 11? Why why don't we just do that? Let me suggest to you why we cannot do that. Because Paul doesn't do that. It's in here, folks. And if we're going to be serious Christians, we have to live under the authority of God's word, even those sections that we don't understand, even those sections we don't like. Here's another reason why we should speak of it. It's because reprobation assures us that God's purpose in salvation has not failed. Somebody might say, well, what's the point of preaching the gospel if God has already decided beforehand? If God's going to save somebody anyway, What difference does it make? Well, that's the wrong way of putting it. It's not fair to say that God is going to save them anyway. He's going to save them the way that he has chosen to save them. And the way that he has chosen to save them is through the preaching of the gospel. This is why I love the parable of the sower. The sower's job is to simply do what in Jesus' parable? Throw out the seed. Now, some of that seed falls on different types of soil. Some of it falls on the hard path, right? And the birds come down and swoop and take it away. Some of it falls on what? Rocky soil, doesn't have much roots, springs up, the sun comes out, scorches it, it withers and dies. Some of it falls on what appears to be fertile soil, but it's infested with, with thorns and thickets that choke out the life. And some of it falls on fertile soil and it takes root and it produces fruit. Now, according to Jesus' parable, the gospel is preached and only a quarter of the time does it ever take root and make a difference. But is that the sower's concern? No, the sower's job is to do what? Throw out the seed as liberally as possible. The soil, the nature of the soil, who's that up to? That's up to God. God determines the nature of the soil. So why do we do evangelism? One reason we do evangelism is because God tells us to do evangelism. And evangelism is the means by which God will call the elect. They will be made alive. They will hear the message of grace and mercy and forgiveness. They will respond to it. Let me go back to Romans 8 for just a minute since everybody says, let's just... Stick with Romans 8 and forget about the rest. Go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Verse 28, that most popular of all the verses in Romans, that we know that in all things God works together for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. How many of you love that passage? What an encouraging passage that is. How do you know that God is going to work everything out for good, even when you cannot see how it's going to work out in the end? How do you know absolutely, positively, without a single doubt, that God is going to work all things together for good? It's because of what comes in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined He conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The only way, the only way that you and I know as believers that everything is going to work out for good is because the same God who foreknew you, who took note of you, in your mother's womb before the foundations of the earth called you. Because he called you, he justified you. And because he justified you, he will one day glorify you. It is God's work from start to finish. So we share the gospel. We don't know. There were two men they were hanging next to Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. One was numbered among the elect, one was not. This says make your calling and election sure. What it means is we never knew that that thief on the cross was going to be saved. From a worldly point of view, he was absolutely lost. Was he more enlightened than the other guy? They were both wretches. But apparently God worked in that man's heart that he saw in Jesus who was suffering there and praying for those who were persecuting him the eyes of his faith were opened and he believed and that day he was with the lord in paradise reprobation also helps us to deal with apostasy helps us to understand why it is that some people can profess the faith for years and then all of a sudden one day renounce it i mean the scriptures are clear you 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 don't lose your salvation folks If you can can get your salvation by grace, but you maintain it by works, it's not grace at all. But yet there are people who denounce the faith. The argument is that they were probably never really saved to begin with. Reprobation reminds us that salvation is entirely of grace. It's God's amazing grace. And finally, reprobation reminds us that if we are believers at all, it is God alone who deserves the glory. It is God alone who deserves the glory. Now sometimes people get upset and say, oh, what makes me worried about my children? Let me tell you something. You don't know whether your children are numbered among the elect. What are you supposed to do? Keep praying. Well, I don't know. Is a prayer going to make any difference? God chose them or He didn't choose them. That's not the way God works. He says, You keep praying, just like you keep preaching the gospel. Nobody on that last day is ever going to hear God say, Well done, good and successful servant. The job of the believer is to be faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so we preach the gospel. We pray unceasing. Trusting that God, who has appointed the ends, has also appointed the means. And so to God alone, be the glory. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that we do not understand, and there are so many questions that we have. But grant us the grace to trust you. Nobody in this life or in this world is ever going to get injustice. It would be a whole lot easier for us, quite frankly, Father, to just skip over these chapters in Romans. But we haven't the freedom to do so because we are called to live under the authority of your word, to swallow the aspirin whole, not to chew on it, but to trust you and in all things give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Next week, Is God Just?